0: Ian, just in between series of Page 94, could we do a special one-off episode about revolving doors?
1: You can do what you like. I'm off. I've used the contacts I've made here to get myself a job on Mail Online.
2: Page 94, The Private Eye Podcast.
0: Hello and welcome to a one-off special edition of Page 94. My name is Andrew Hunter-Murray and this is a bonus inter-series podcast all about the revolving door between government and the world of big business. Uh, If you don't read the magazine, first of all, uh, please go and buy the magazine. And secondly, uh, in our last issue, we had a special six-page report all about this distinctly murky system. Private Eye's crack investigative squad have been looking into it for some years now, and it has reached almost epidemic proportions lately. First up, here is one of the authors of the report, Richard Brooks, explaining exactly what The Revolving Door is.
1: The Revolving Door is uh, a slightly tongue-in-cheek reference to the way that senior officials and politicians can move seamlessly from their public position into a very lucrative private payday.
0: And it's an internationally recognised phenomenon as well. Uh, Here is the fellow Private Eye reporter
2: and the co-author of the special report, Solomon Hughes. In Japan, it's known as Amakaduri, which means Descent of the Gods from Heaven because the government gods descend into the world of corporate enterprise. Very, very dramatic saying, whereas in France they call it pantouflage, which means putting on a lovely warm pair of slippers. The
0: history of the revolving door may sound like it stretches back
2: to ancient Japanese feudal tradition,
0: but you will be delighted to hear that it is still being practiced and perfected even today.
1: Here's Richard Brooks. George Osborne's top advisor, chap called Rupert Harrison, nice chap, old Etonian often does a lot on the television and radio now when he was with george osborne in the treasury he came up with the idea of uh, what some people have called a pensions free for all where people can just uh, take all their pension savings and do what they want with it spend it on a lamborghini anything like that but of course they don't do that they buy other financial products sold by uh, companies like blackrock asset management the biggest asset manager in the world okay which is funny enough where he now works Having left George Osborne's office, he has become a managing director at BlackRock. Okay, so there's clearly an incentive
0: for someone who's in government or is making policy to try and come up with policies that are
1: friendly towards...
0: The business areas that they know about—is that yes,
2: that,
1: thats it. That they would say that's just a terrible calumny, and that uh, they have far too much integrity for that kind of thing. And I think they probably aren't sitting in their offices in Whitehall thinking, "Aha! Here's a clever wheeze. Uh, I'll be able to cash in on this in a few months' time." It's not quite as blatant as that. It's a bit more um, insidious and ubiquitous. And there might be other long words to describe it as well. (laughs) But the point of this special report was to show just how widespread this phenomenon is and just how standard it is uh, for officials to leave a public job and move into a private job in a very similar area. Uh, So you create this environment in which there's an expectation that you will get a job in the private sector. That's going to affect your behaviour while you're in office because... You, you're you likely to see things the way that your prospective employers will. You want to have some sort of integrity. You want to be consistent. You will also be regularly meeting your former colleagues who've not so long ago spun through the revolving door and are now representing firms that you're involved with as a regulator or a policymaker. The two sides become very entwined and everybody starts to think alike. That's the problem. You remove all the tension between... The public sector and the private sector, which you would hope produces the right result, and you end up with everybody thinking like the people who want to make money.
0: And is this partly because the private sector is much more involved in government? I'm thinking of large contracts being dashed out to prisons or to uh, the health service or anything like that,
1: because that has yeah, risen yeah. a great deal over the last what 20, 30 years. That's right. The revolving door really became a bit of a controversy in the early days of privatisation. Peter Walker, for example, was the energy secretary Mm -hmm. who um, sold off the the gas industry um, and he then went to work for British Gas in the 1980s. So there were the occasional scandalous examples like that, but the phenomenon grew in number drastically under New Labour when their version of privatization was outsourcing and the private finance initiative
0: see page 94 episode 18 so a uh, case in point of a senior minister who's recently left government perhaps looking around uh, for something to do with his whole life ahead of him of course uh, david cameron so what's the next
1: prime minister to do you know when people reach top jobs at a very young age they're going to want they know they're going to have to do something afterwards especially with no way back into politics once you right. once you crash and burn you're gone that's it Cameron won't be uh, a Westminster politician again um, so you've got to think seriously about what you're going to do for the rest of your life and of course you're going to leave your options open in our special report we we ran through what some of the new Labour lot have done Brown Blair Mandelson
0: yeah so I um, mean obviously Tony Blair is widely known as having taken a huge number of business jobs all over the world but except it's not really clear what exactly he's taken
1: because it's all done through a company is that right Yeah, tony blair runs his affairs through a very opaque structure he has a limited liability partnership a limited partnership and a limited company a kind of chain of ownership that conceals what he's doing how much he's earning Uh, you have no idea what his income is uh, or where it comes from and of course he didn't take a position in the lords so he doesn't have to declare anything publicly Peter Mandelson on the other hand did take a position in the Lords, but he's found a loophole in the regulations governing what you have to declare by setting up a consultancy and saying, ah, oh, I earn money from this consultancy and we don't know who the consultancy's clients are. We get the odd glimpse, but uh, we don't know all of them.
0: But surely if the consultancy has clients who want uh, Mr Mandelson to lobby for them using his doubtless impeccable uh, roster of clients that he's built up in government and contacts that he's built up in government there's no way around this in the rules there's no way to say look are you working for companies who are lobbying the government and might that have any bearing on
1: no the the rules say that if you are personally involved then you should declare who the client is but he says he's not personally involved and he appears to have had some sort of clearance from the lord's authorities to say that's okay it looks very odd because we know that people take on his firm because of him they don't, uh, they don't take on the, the firm and say, so I
0: hope we get Mandelson when it is, it's Mandelson's firm.
1: That's right. It's, the firm is called Global Council. And okay. It's essentially Lord Mandelson and a chap called Benjamin Wegg Prosser. Big corporate clients don't phone up and hope they get Benji. <laughs> They they, uh, they want the organ grinder
0: One thing I found uh, remarkable in the report Was I mentioned that Tony Blair When he was Prime Minister He actually intervened and overruled The Mandarin who was looking at These appointments And uh, had uh, suggested a long period of quarantine For for a military figure Air Chief Marshal Sir John Day Who wanted to work for uh, BAE Systems
2: Yes, Blair very early on overruled ACOBA, the committee that was saying, as they sort of would, they were saying, oh, no, you can't just let this top military official join a top arms supplier, uh, because how can we be sure that uh, future generals won't just think, oh, well, I've got a cosy berth there with the arms supplier, so I won't be too tough on them, or something like that. And that was absolutely standard. And Blair stood in and overruled them, said no. And this was him chipping away, because he wanted to chip away at the barrier between the public and the private sectors. And the military was the area where the revolving door really
1: got spinning first. In fact, back in 2004, the advisory committee that looks at business appointments said that it can be argued that the numbers seeking such employment are so significant as to amount to a traffic from the Ministry of Defence to the defence contractors. So we have this consistent flow of top brass from the MOD and the, and the services into the big arms companies. Arms trafficking. Arms trafficking. Thank that's you very much. <laughs> right. Well done. Um. <laughs> but you can imagine what it means in practice. If you're, if you're a, f- a field marshal or a general and you're in your 50s, you're thinking about something else to do, the Ministry of Defence listened to what you say about what the armed forces need. So are you going to say, look, let's not cut tens of thousands of troops, let's instead save some money on these big, huge, multi billion pound, often wasteful equipment contracts which side are you going to come down on well if you know there's a good chance that you're going to get a job if you
2: say the right thing in in the arms company that's seriously going to influence how you behave it's the one area of tremendous feather bedding waste late contracts over expensive contracts machinery that doesn't work so it's not the the, this this transmission of expertise is not actually associated with efficient government work it's rather the opposite
0: I'm just looking now at the aircraft carriers example that you cite, which have – in 2008, they would have cost about £2.9 billion. Now they're costing £6.2 billion. And those are huge contracts, obviously, which have gone to the Aircraft Carriers Alliance – which is a, a mix between a British and a French
2: company, isn't it? Thales, which is some kind of god. Thales <laughs> is one of these gods descending from heaven. He's the god of very expensive contracts. <laughs> which is a French company and uh, Babcock and BAE Systems. Yes, and of course the feature. One of the features was it it doesn't matter if it's a French company or if it's the British company, they're all going to grab some senior British official or some senior British ex-minister. It appears to be associated that that's part of the deal. Now, obviously, people say that that relationship isn't that close. But standing back from it, it looks like there is a a close association, a close association with, with the revolving door and big contracts and Unfortunately, also a close association with a revolving door and big contracts that go wrong, don't work, are late, cost too much.
0: So, who is meant to be regulating all of this? Uh, you may have heard the name ACOBA earlier on. Well, here it is again.
1: There's a body called ACOBA, the Advisory Committee on Business Appointments, okay. which, is, which is a cabinet office committee. So, that's civil uh, service. It, that's right. And it, yeah. it advises the prime minister, officially okay. the prime minister has to opine on these very senior appointments and she is advised by a ACOBA which is chaired by a peer called uh, Baroness Browning Angela Browning who was a Tory minister in the 1980s uh, a junior minister and we we've looked at the committee in some detail and the
2: unfortunately it, it might as well not be there for the job it does. <laughs> they said to us we don't have a policing remit. They haven't been given a policing remit because the uh, ministers who are in charge haven't given them the remit to police ministers, which that's not surprising in one way. Now of course some ACOBA chair people and members have been better than others there's absolutely no doubt some have pushed harder than others, uh, some have, have been uh, softer than others but the, the, the system is set up To make a flap and do nothing. Right. (laughs) Which is the classic British way. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) We've looked at this and we've worried and we've decided to do very little.
0: Let's say I've just been fired from my job as uh, Secretary of State for Transport. And I've got a large transport company, whether it's road building, bus firm, whatever it might be, Mm. saying, come and work for us um, for £250,000 a year. Very light work. You won't even have to empty your own bin at the end of the day. (laughs) What do I do
1: next? Well, next you have to put in an application to the advisory committee on business appointments. And they will run it past your former department. On that application, you're supposed to say what involvement you've had with your putative employer... Let's say I dished them out of contract for
0: a a few million pounds last year.
1: Then you should say that. Right. And you would hope that the committee would then say, oh, well, that's beyond the pale. You can't go and work for that company. Okay. And does that happen very much? Well, it appears not to. Uh, We looked at the figures going back to 2010, uh, and we found that of around 530 jobs these are ministers or very senior civil servants, you know, the Sir Humphrey type figures, um, that none had been rejected. They'd approved every single one. Wow. Now, they do impose conditions. Okay. There's a default condition, which is a three-month waiting period. That's okay. You can get your garden looking nice (laughs) in that sort of time before you step back into the boardroom. And then for other jobs that look a bit more controversial like the kind of example you've just given, mm-hmm. they might suggest a longer waiting period. Okay. And in our current issue, we've just written about the latest uh, big job that ACOBA has approved. That was for General Sir Peter Wall, who was uh, head of the general staff, so he ran the army for a long time. The army gets lots of kit from... The big manufacturers, including a US company called General Dynamics. He's got a multi-billion pound contract with them. And Cobra said, well, this doesn't look great. We've even thought about not approving this. But, oh, well, he's, he's not a bad chap, and I think we can trust him, but so we will approve it. Okay, uh, So it has been approved with an 18-month waiting period. 18 months? From when he left office. Ah, but he left office on 1st of January 2015, which means... Convenient enough, he can step straight into the boardroom. Right. You get an example like Dave Hartnett, who was the former top tax inspector in HMRC. He had extensive dealings with HSBC when they had just been exposed for their huge Swiss offshore tax evasion. And HMRC had got this disc full of details. He met the bank half a dozen times. As you know, from they emerged, the bank emerged from that completely clean. They didn't get prosecuted, even though they were behind massive tax evasion. Yet he told Acoba his dealings with the bank had been no more significant than with other banks, which was clearly misleading. He also took a job with Deloitte, an accountancy firm with whom he'd struck many deals, dozens of deals with big companies on tax settlements, and with whose chairman he'd met 48 times in five years and with whom he's on very good terms. He took a job with that firm, and Acoba said, well, he had dealings with all accountancy firms, so that's okay. So there's there's an obfuscation going on in the process. Applicants downplay their previous involvement with a company they want to
2: work for, and Acoba publishes summaries that don't give you the full truth either. The Advisory Committee on Business Appointments says to former ministers and former officials – all right, you can have this job, but you can't lobby for one year or two years or six months. It leaves the other half of the question, how do we know whether they're lobbying? How do we know whether this lobbying is happening? And we just don't know, because the advisory committee says we're not a policing body. They don't police, they don't chase people up. So how can we find out? Now, so what we'd need to know is who who are lobbying ministers to see if any of the people have been banned from lobbying are now lobbying. Now, we have some tools that the government has started publishing is they publish lists of companies of outside interest that have met current ministers. So that that might show the lobbying. But when they publish those lists, they never put the name of who comes from the company. So I spotted a couple of years ago that a very senior civil servant in the uh, Department of Energy had met somebody from a company called URS. URS, an American company that had a very expensive, very sensitive contract working on nuclear materials for the Department of Energy. I mean, you're talking hundreds of millions of pounds of work here. And they were doing it badly. It wasn't going well. So if somebody from this American company is meeting a Department of Energy civil servant, that could be lobbying about a sensitive contract. But the question was... Who was meeting? Who had come from URS? We didn't know. Uh, I did a Freedom of Information request and the answer came back. It was a man called Lord Strathclyde, a former government minister who'd left government, joined URS. He'd been allowed to have the job. The uh, Cobra said, Yeah, you can have the job. But they said, But you can't lobby for two years. And yet here he was meeting a senior civil servant on behalf of the firm, which looks like lobbying. He said he wasn't lobbying. He said he was meeting, I don't know, for some other reason, a chat, I don't know. But he was meeting in the name of URS. That's what the record said. Potentially, if you have the names of the people who meet ministers, you could spot whether anyone is potentially breaking the rules on a COBRA and whether those rules would need to be tightened up. The problem is... They don't publish those names. Now, they did give that name in response to a freedom of information request two years ago. But ever since then, every time I've asked for the name of somebody meeting a minister off the list of we met these people from these companies, they refuse to say. They say it's confidential personal information.
0: And also, you can't make a freedom of information request about every single governmental meeting. They won't tell you. See page 94, episode 12. But also, it's not practical
2: for journalists to do. No, I mean, it's, it's really obvious and simple, isn't it? Give us the list of the names. We say that, look, if, you, if we could see people's applications or at least what
1: they say on their application about their prior involvement with a future employer, uh, that would encourage them to tell the truth because if it's not true, it would be exposed. Yeah. Uh, they say, oh, no, 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 if we give out any information at all, people won't play ball with the process. so (laughs) So you can't can't ask people to
0: tell the truth because they'll lie exactly exactly is anything being done about it at the moment because this seems to be a system that doesn't quite work
1: in terms of the taxpayer yeah it doesn't work there's a parliamentary committee called the public administration and constitutional affairs committee which is looking at a cobra it regularly looks at a cobra and and it's 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 forever saying look this is useless Uh, back in 2008 it's said that uh, former ministers in particular appear to be able to use with impunity the contracts they build up as public servants to further a private
2: interest. Nothing's been done since. A very senior figure said uh, in 2010 he defined the revolving door not about greedy ex-ministers but about corporate influence and he said uh, i'm talking about lobbying and we all know how it works the lunches the hospitality the quiet word in your ear the ex-ministers and ex advisers for hire helping big business find the right way to get its way and he said this is uh, potentially crony capitalism if we looked at this happening in a developing world country, ministers moving to firms that had big government contracts, there'd be no doubt people would say that is crony capitalism. It's a system which is potentially or actually corrupt. But we look at ourselves and we don't. But this very senior figure in 2010 said that, he had the courage to say that, and it was, of course, David Cameron, who went on to be prime minister and didn't do much (laughs) to stop it. Now, of course, we're now in the position where David Cameron is an ex-minister, potentially for hire. So we will see whether he was describing a bad thing or writing out his own career trajectory. <laughs> now, I understand the first thing he suggested he might do is write his memoirs. Now, of course, in the olden days, uh, Tory uh, prime ministers, they were, to be honest, they had a load of money anyway, so they weren't chasing it. And so they just did retire to write their memoirs. Harold Macmillan wrote six volumes of memoirs, which <laughs> I don't think anyone has read. But of course, he did. I think he was working. For, I think he more or less ran Macmillan, the publisher. So it's easy to do right. no one could say no <laughs> Harold no more no more volumes uh, so you know possibly David Cameron I'm sure he's read this report and he thought oh Ikes you know I don't want to be seen as too too much the air to Blair maybe I'll sound more Macmillan and talk about my memoirs but we shall see we shall see has there been much of a reaction from readers to the special report because that was in the last issue yeah we've had quite a few
1: responses from readers ranging from uh, well done for exposing this scandal to, I suggest you file this report under No Shit Sherlock. And that kind of captures it, really, because the scandal is that it's everywhere and that nothing's done about it, that this isn't especially new. I mean, it's getting worse. Even the Advisory Committee on Business Appointments says it's getting worse. But it's just been going on for so long and it's become such an accepted part of public life. That's the scandal. But it's so accepted among our top public officials that nothing gets done about it and it gives undue influence to vested interests as a kind of permanent distortion in our democratic system. Richard
0: Brooks, ending this edition of Page 94. Thanks again to Richard and to Solomon. If you'd like to read a little more, we've got a follow-up piece all about revolving doors in issue 1427 of Private Eye, which is on newsstands now and features, among other things, uh, Jilly Cooper, Roger Daltrey and Liam Fox. Three pretty cool cats, I think we can agree. Uh, Page 94 will return sometime before Labour's next leadership election. Until then, my name is Andrew Hunter-Murray. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye.